Delighting in the Trinity is the title of a book written by a British Christian by the name of Michael Reeves. Some of you are going through that book in a small group study. It's always hard to rank books, but if, if you push me, I would probably say that it, it was the best paperback that I've read over the last year. Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves. If you're looking for some kind of summer reading material, you, you can do no better. That word Trinity is a compound word, tri-unity. It's been the church's attempt at, or, or Trinitas, it was actually Tertullian, I think in the third century, who, who coined it. The church's attempt at trying to capture the threeness, in what way is God three, and in what way is God one. It is not an exercise in speculative theology. If you go back to the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17, which is the conversation that takes place between Jesus and his disciples in the upper room during the Passover meal. The upper room discourse, as it's called. Those guys were about T-minus three hours into having their lives crumble, utterly shatter all around them. And what is the topic that Jesus wanted to, to speak with them about before is their last conversation pieced together, he thought that they needed to know something more about this doctrine. It's the doctrine that separates us from other pseudo-Christian sects. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. LDS, Latter-day Saints, 25% of the state of Idaho believes in Jesus by name, but doesn't believe in, in the orthodox doctrine of the, the Trinity. Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims are all quick to point out that there's no Trinity verse in the Bible. There's no passage that explicitly teaches it. But Trinity is implied everywhere. I hope that over the years here at the church, you've come to see Trinity is on so many pages of the New Testament. Actually, I included 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 14 as an example of this. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. All of those difficult things that you try to do in a church community. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints throughout all the churches... That word saint is simply, it's a title that's used for for all kinds of Christians, not special Christians. All the saints greet you. And then the benediction, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, here God being God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The profound question that people have been asking through the centuries is... If there is a God, if a God exists, then why is there something in addition to him? Another way of putting it, why would a God choose to create a universe? Why would he do that? Put yourself in his shoes. Is it because he's lonely? He's he's in need of friends? 
he's bored and wants to try a new hobby. You know, most Americans are theists. They believe in, in God. But if you were to drill down very deeply, discover that they can't tell you much about him other than he's the man upstairs. Well, why would the man upstairs choose to create? Um, presumably, if he is a god, then I, I think part of the definition of deity is that you last forever. You, you are eternal by nature. Well, presumably, if he is a god, he's existed in eternity past before anything ever came into being. That type of god would have been all alone. Before he created a universe, before there was any big bang or any big anything, for all of eternity, that type of God, I think America's God, it is for all of the days of his past, he's had nobody or nothing to love. I could put it in other terms, not simply American terms, but in terms of Islam. They say that Allah is supposedly... He has 99 names or titles which describe him as he has been from, from all eternity. And one of the titles given to Allah is, quote, the loving one. But how could that be? How could Allah be loving if there is nothing else in existence that he could love except loving himself? I, I know that it, when I ask these questions, it sort of sounds weird, philosophical. You've, you probably have never thought of this before, but it really does pose a problem if you are a, a deep-thinking individual, or if you're a deep-thinking Muslim. Um, you could say that Allah is a God who created because he needs friendship, or a God, he needed companionship. But that would mean then that that God needs his creation to be part of who he is. He needs his creation in order to be loving. Well, if that's the case, Allah or that God is dependent on his creation. And one of the cardinal beliefs in Islam is that Allah is dependent on nobody or nothing. Again, you go back to the question, why is there something rather than, than nothing? And the ancient Babylonian culture gave their own answer to that. In the creation myth, you might have had to read it in, in uh, Western civilization. Enuma Elish, um, the, the chief of the Babylonian gods, the, the top of the Babylonian pantheon, Marduk, he, at one point in the story, he comes right out and puts it very bluntly, and he says the reason that he created human beings was so that, so that he could have slaves. <laughs> Nothing terribly virtuous about, <laughs> about that act of creation. He's not very politically sensitive or correct. He said, Marduk creates so that he can live off the labor of his human workforce. And Reeve, in his book, goes on to, to make this point. The problem with all non-triune gods or all single-person gods is that they have spent all of eternity alone. And if you've spent that long, sort of locked in your own room, it's hard to see, logically, why, why some deity like that would ever cause anything else to exist. Like, it, it's hard to imagine. 
if you've got a God who has been eternally in solitude, his greatest pleasure is his own peace and quiet, the, the existence of, an, of a universe is rather irritatingly distracting. Uh, if you're a parent who loves your own peace and quiet, you know, you should not have become a parent in the first place. And there's a sense, why would that kind of God choose to become a parent? He, he could do it because he's lonely. Well, then he's creating out of his own sense of neediness, and that's not very godlike. He could do it because he's extremely selfish. But again, that's not a God that you'd want to follow. He could do it for his own personal interest, but, but that's just another form of self-gratification. The bottom line is if you've got a single God, you have a problem. If you've got a triune God, you have something that is, is the most beautiful belief and idea that has ever been conceived of. I think you have the answer to the, the, the deep questions of life. How do you have the one and the many, the particular and diversity, unity and diversity? You've got, you've got so many answers. If God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to say is that can account for so much more of reality than your God can. Let's dig into this. What What does the Trinity teach us? First, it teaches us, this is kind of a duh moment, but it teaches us that God from, from all of eternity is a father. Perfect Father's Day sermon material right there. From all eternity is a father. Now, last time I checked, in order to be a father, you have to have a child. And so God, it also teaches, God from all eternity is a son. That the father is the father of an eternal son. The son is the son of eternal of an eternal father. The father finds his very identity in loving and giving out his life for his son, his child. And then in the, in the fourth century, probably the greatest theologian in the history of the Christian church, Augustine comes along and he says, where does the Holy Spirit fit into all of this? The Holy Spirit is like the personal love that is shared between the two of them. Let me try to give you an example of this. Uh, do you remember the, the first time you, you fell head over heels in love with somebody? I mean, even if it was elementary school puppy love. I do, I remember, I won't go into that story. but <laughs> It happened quite a few times. Remember when you you fall head over heels in love with someone, you simply adore them, but you secretly adore them. They don't know of your your affections until what happens when you discover that they feel the same way about you as you do them. That they are secretly head over heels in love with you. That is the most sublime feeling in the world. And you can think about it that way, that God has always been experiencing that, that sublime expression. Let's just say this, that if, if, if what I, I'm trying to teach you is true, if God in his essential nature 
is all about loving each other, if that has been his heart for all of eternity, then it makes perfect sense for that type of God to create something because he just wants to share that love with someone else. It wasn't out of a sense of neediness, according to the Christian doctrine. They, they didn't need anything because they always had each other. And it wasn't out of a sense of selfishness because this was not a lonely God looking for followers. It is not... It's just utterly appropriate, and no other religion can say this, utterly utterly appropriate for our God to do something like for for that kind of God to produce that kind of love that would spill out over the cup into everything else. So Ken kind of touched on it in the prayers. I mean, we all know that not everyone instinctively warms to the idea that God is a father. I would add one more statistic to the long list that he he gave us earlier. That I, I read that nearly 40% of all American children will go to bed tonight in a home without a dad who is present in that home. 40%. Um, there there are so many examples, uh, instances of distant or abusive fathers. Maybe you've heard of the name before, Michael Foucault. Foucault was a, a French philosopher, one of the, the more influential postmodernist philosophers of the 20th century. He spent, Foucault spent the bulk of his life's work writing about the evils of authority because the this, the, the major authority figure in his life was a devilish father. He, he had a dad who was fearful of his son growing up into being a namby-pamby boy. And so Mr. Foucault Sr., who was a surgeon, did what he could to toughen up his son, which meant, among other things, forcing his little boy to watch, to witness amputations of his patients. Um, and so for Foucault, as for many others, this this word father came to be associated with a host of dark images. I really appreciated the prayer today to pray uh, for those kinds of sons and daughters because our heart does go out to them. Um, But Reeves makes this point that God the Father is, is not called Father because he copies earthly fathers. He's not some type of pumped up or trumped up version of your dad and when we do what we're normally like likely to do we project our image the image of earthly fathers and translate transfer the failings of earthly fathers to god that's got it entirely backwards we don't learn what god is like by looking at our dads not necessarily rather we learn what father Son relationships are patterned to be in the father-son life of the Trinity. And what we see when we look at that pet picture, we discover, if I could put it this way, a dad who enjoys playing kickball in the backyard of the universe with his son. Um, that's a crass way. Maybe that's a bad way of putting it. But you find a dad who is delighted to spend his life with his boy. This effusive, uh, joyful, bountiful dad who 
whose favorite expression of his life is pouring out his love into his son. It's the very opposite of the greedy, hungry, selfish, cranky old man upstairs. And that, I mean, how did people ever get that idea that that's what God is like? (sighs) But they have it. I've got five of these. What is inner Trinitarian life like? They're, they're really short. Number one, Trinitarian life is uh, it's transparent life. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have a perfectly honest and transparent relationship. They don't hide anything from each other. There are no secrets that are kept between them. They there's a sense that like they have the marriage that every one of us has to be to be completely vulnerable and known by another person without any fear of reprisals or, or rejection criticism hostility they've got none of that like the father is perfectly comfortable and and showing the son who he is and the son is feels totally safe to do that back with his father because there's no criticism or hostility there's no lies and there's no hidden secrets number two trinitarian life is humble there has never been a day in all of eternity when jesus was jealous of the glory of his dad he never not for a single instant covets the attention or praise of the angels and likewise the father rejoices to see his son honored when there's never been a sunday in the history of christian worship when the name of the of jesus is worshiped and that the father of the holy spirit stand back and and feel a a pang of jealousy or bitterness that people are honoring the son there's never been there's never been a second like that third Trinitarian life is submissive. Well, that's interesting because we we think that submission is a, a four-letter, dehumanizing kind of experience. Four-letter word, dehumanizing, but not to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, though being entirely equal to the Father, nevertheless submits to his Father, just like any son does with with his earthly father the the holy spirit submits to the father and the son the, there are a number of scriptures i could go through the list but i i won't just but a number of scriptures where jesus submitted to his father and there's not a single scripture that i can find in all the bible that says that the father submitted to the son uh, the father you might say, is the first among equals. The Father is the one to whom the Son submits, and yet that doesn't mean that the Son or the Spirit are inferior to the Father. They, like, happily follow His paternal authority, and you you may know that the Bible traces that out into other human relationships about submission of, I know it's not popular to say, but of wives to their husbands of citizens to their country of church members to their elders and their in their local church and and that is not dehumanizing um 
and you are not inferior for having done so. The Father and the Son and the, the, the Son and the Spirit are, are very happy to submit. Which leads me to number four. Trinitarian life is eternally happy. The tragedy is that too many people don't understand this. They, they think that God is devilish, as though he created us to get something from us. Is, or he created us in order to legislate to us. But nobody is happier in all of the universe than the triune God. And you would be too if you were in a relationship like theirs. I mean, they, there's never any jealousy or disrespect. They have nothing to hide. There's no blame or accusations or name-calling. The most happy person who has ever lived or ever will live is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Number five, the last one I want to mention is that Trinitarian life is perichoretic. <laughs> what? Per, Greek perichoresis, P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S. was one of those big technical theologian terms that they use to describe the, the relationships between the persons of the Trinity. And all it really means, perichoretic, interpenetrating. While the Father is not the Son, the Father indwells or penetrates the Son completely. While the Son is not the Father, the, so the Son indwells the Father completely. While the, the Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son, they are, they are indwelled completely. They penetrate each other. They are always together. They are never alone. They're never alone. Sometimes we imagine, uh, you go back to Jesus' earthly life, we imagine the, the Father in heaven looking down on the bird's eye view onto Israel and watching his son walk through the streets of Galilee and preach and cast out demons. And we can almost imagine the Father, you know, giving his son, clapping his hands as he's watching his son do all of this. Or we imagine a happy reunion when the when the Lord Jesus returns to heaven as the Father with tears in his eyes welcomes back his obedient son who is willing to suffer and die for sinners. And it's almost like we imagine like a prodigal, a prodigal son experience where the son comes back to the father. They were separated and now they're, they're back together and, and they're so happy. But Perichoresis tells us that it, it doesn't quite work like that. <laughs> because... Their divine nature always, they're always together. They mutually indwell each other. They never say goodbye. It gets a bit complicated. I hope that I haven't already stepped into the realm of heresy. Like, whenever you start to talk about the Trinity and like inter Trinitarian life workings, I, as a pastor, you get really nervous because, because I'm afraid I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up. It's complicated. We know that when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, he took on a human nature. And that human nature, in, in, that human nature, it did walk around the streets of Israel for 35 plus years and, and go on the cross and died and descended into hell, as we say in the Apostles' Creed. That human nature was separated from the Father, but the divine nature never can be. And I'm going somewhere with this important. And when 
Jesus prays for us in the upper room in John 17. John 17, 21. He prays that they may all be one. Even as you are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. He prays that we, that this mutual indwelling interpenetration of the Trinity, that we would be uh, brought into that. That's his vision of the Christian life. And if, if a God was a lonely single person up in heaven, he could never have pulled that off. There's just so many things that doesn't make sense if, if God is not triune. If God was a, a bachelor hermit up in heaven, like why would that God ever speak to you? I mean, hermits who've been hermits for eternity, they're not very conversational. Why would that type of God ever want to communicate himself to someone else? Um, what? If he never had anybody to speak to, why would he start speaking now? You could, you could look at it a different way. If God was not a father, how could he ever adopt you into his family and give you the right to be his sons and daughters? If he did not enjoy fellowship with his son, why would he ever have any fellowship to share with us or even want to do that? The most brilliant minds of the last 200 years have basically said that all of life is a will to power. Nietzsche, uh, Marx, Foucault, all of them. They basically say that what life is is just one great big power trip. And the key to a good life is is subsuming power. It's just one big power struggle. And that's, you either live with it or you commit suicide, which they did. Um, But if you believe in the Trinity, the fundamental reality in the world is not violence. Uh, And I say this not to be mushy-squishy. It is love. The fundamental reality in the universe is love. That, That is why human beings begin to shrivel up when they're not loved. Why is it that Lives are destroyed when they don't get a daily exposure of, of fatherly and motherly love. It's because we've been made in the image of the triune God. He has imprinted that part of reality on us. He has made love the goal and fulfillment of all human life. And when you become a Christian, Jesus prays that you might be brought into that interpenetrating love. The last example I want to share with you is the, the great section, from the great section in uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. When he, he writes, he, like there is a logical inconsistency here. How do you get three to one and one to three? Uh, that, that doesn't make a whole lot of large logical sense. I can imagine him at Oxford sitting down with some atheist university professor and and that guy is grilling him on the logical inconsistency like what good is it to debate such logical nonsense and lewis says well fine we don't have to debate it It, it, 
It doesn't do any, necessarily do any good at all. What really matters is being drawn into that three personal life. And that can happen to you tonight if you want it to, is what he said. What I mean is this. An ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to say their prayers by their bed tonight. That Christian is trying to get into touch with God. But as a Christian, they know that what is prompting them to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside of them. And they also know that, that all this real knowledge of God that they have has come through Christ to the man who was God, the, the Christ, and Christ is actually standing there beside them, helping to, them to pray, praying for them. So you see what's happening, Lewis goes on. God is the thing to which the Christian is praying. He's the goal he's trying to re- reach. And God is also the thing inside of him which is pushing him, the power for prayer. And God is also the road or the bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal so that the whole threefold life, the whole three personal being is actually going on in something as ordinary and innocuous as you bowing down your little head beside your bedside tonight and saying your prayers. I don't expect you to be able to like explain it this way to your non-Christian friends or, or family members. But I would love for you to, to begin to think of it uh, in greater detail so that you could express yourself in your own words. I, I really doubt that you have spent much mental energy in the last year thinking about the, the deepest, most profound and beautiful thing in the universe. And that is our God. The triune God is a God we can know and forever grow to know better. And I hope that that is like part of the goal of your life, to get to know. Don't you want to get to know God better? David says in Psalm 22, he could spend all of his days worshiping in the courts of his God. I would love for you to be able to go to your, your grave saying that you could spend all your days just digging down deeper into the nature of your triune God. God, let it be so. Amen.